Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Often for Spirit in Action, we focus on some main part of a person's world healing work. But today we'll be focusing on the richness of Cindy Yurth's profound and wide-ranging world healing journey. Certainly, the 17 years Cindy spent as a journalist with the Navajo Times stand out, including her book, Exploring the Navajo Nation, Chapter by Chapter, as does her current work as president of the Black Hat Humane Society. But early in her life, there is also inspiration in her work founding a literacy program with VISTA and as a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia and also working with the Society of African Missions in Ghana. I hope that you'll be inspired by the vocational and spiritual journey of Cindy Yurth as she joins us via Zoom from southern Colorado, near the Navajo Nation. Cindy, wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Nice to be here. Where exactly are you sitting? I'm in uh, Rockwood, Colorado, about 15 miles north of Durango. And how long have you been there? Just since May. My husband retired in May and we, we moved up here full time, but we've We've owned the the cabin for, let's see, since the last day of 2009. And you moved up from? Chinle, Arizona. And Chinle is only, the the only reason I know the name at all is because of the Jim Chi books. Oh, yeah. Tony Hillerman, yeah. (laughs) And Ann Hillerman now, his daughter. I've been a fan of the area and having learned a lot of the name places. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, my wife was listening to one of Ann Hillerman's continuation on the stories from that area. What took you down to the Four Corners area? I followed my husband. He graduated with a teaching degree in 2005, and he was looking around for jobs, and there was a music teacher position open at Chinle High School, and I thought that sounded like a lot of fun to live on a reservation for a while and, and learn the culture. And it was a good fit for him because his major instrument is guitar, and they had a, a guitar program going. So that's how we ended up there. And I imagine it would attract you also. I, just looking through your resume, your is quite an adventure in, in itself. From the time that you were in Vista and then the Peace Corps and when you were overseas in Ghana doing your work there and your journalism career, and we're going to cover a lot of that. And mainly what I'd like to hold up today is this story of Cindy Yurth as a person who's pursuing world healing in many different guises. So let's go back to childhood. Did you grow up in some kind of an activist family that you're going to be launched in Peace Corps and Vista and all these things? No, quite the contrary. (laughs) I was born in Venezuela, and both my parents worked for Gulf Oil. Well, my dad worked for Gulf Oil, and my mom worked for the international school that the Gulf Oil employees sent their children to. So, you know, we were there as colonists, basically, (laughs) exploiting the resources of a different country. Yeah, all my life, my dad's been kind of at odds with my, what he calls do-gooderism. So... No, I did not grow up with any kind of encouragement at all. Other than that, I think my parents were, compared to the other Americans that were there, they did explore the culture quite a bit. Most, Both of them got very good at Spanish. 
And we did, you know, take trips to different villages and explore the country a little bit. So I I think they were maybe more cross-cultural than most of the Americans who kind of rarely left the gated community except to go grocery shopping. Yeah, so they were not insular in their approach. I actually, when I was in Togo, the village I lived in, there was a bunch of expatriates living there because of a big cement factory that was being built, uh, an international effort. So I met a Frenchman there who was a wonderful, outgoing, and completely non-xenophobic person who loved exploring all the different culture, like what you're describing your family doing. But he talked about the rest of the people in that little enclave who were very insular. So at least you got that out of it. I imagine also in their own way, your parents were very principled. Yeah, I mean, I think they saw the inequality between how we were living and the average Venezuelan. But I think to them, the way to pull people out of poverty was capitalism. Yeah. Well, and and that's a a dividing line down the middle of America right now, I think, to some people. You don't need compassion, just got to stiff upper lip and get to work. Right. (laughs) So you went into Vista in 1985, and I don't know how popular Vista is these days. I've seen Vista volunteers around here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, over the last five years. What was your experience like? I started an adult literacy program. I was working for the local paper in Logan, Utah, and being originally from the Denver area, you know, after, of course, we moved to the States and everything, I had never met an adult who couldn't read. But in that farming community at that time, there were people who had dropped out of school to work on the farm and and read at about a third grade level. And there were lots of uh, immigrants. At that time, there were still Vietnamese immigrants coming in, and there were a lot of Hispanic immigrants who came in to work at the meatpacking plant and, and in the fields who who also could not read English. So after a while, as a journalist, you know, you're exposed to the problems of your community. And, and I think eventually a lot of us feel like doing something about it and sort of, you know, switch careers. And I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on journalism and volunteering but that was what I did as a VISTA volunteer. There, there was actually a, a VISTA literacy corps at the time that was setting up these small one-on-one adult literacy programs throughout the country. And so what led you to get involved in that? It was a year-long service. You were already working in journalism, which I think should help literacy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what led you to do VISTA at that point? Well, before working at the Logan paper, I'd been working at the Brigham City paper, and our what we called them the society editor. I, I think these days it'd probably be called features editor or something like that. She was a very active person in the community. And this was like totally alien to me because, you know, my family was never uh, much into volunteering. And she kind of got me into all these different American Association of University Women and all these different clubs that were doing things for the social good of the community and then when I moved to Logan, I, I think I still had some of that volunteer spirit and just, you know, we're working at the newspaper and realizing not everyone in the community could even read what I was writing was sort of what prompted me to look for volunteer opportunities. So you still continued working for the newspaper at the time you were a VISTA volunteer? 
No, at that time you had to do it full time. Yeah, I, I quit the paper in I think 1986. And at that time, the deal was you, you lived on whatever someone in your situation would make if they were on welfare. So I was living on $200 a month. <laughs> <laughs> and our one of our photographers had some property up in Richmond, Utah, which was 12 miles north of Logan, very rural community. And he had an old, it was an egg sorting building at one time. It was just basically a, a shack. It had electricity, but no running water. And he plumbed it for me and, you know, made it into a livable space and rented it to me for $75 a month. <laughs> so I was actually able to live pretty well on $200 a month. <laughs> you lived there with the eggs then, the, the former egg sorting facility. Yeah, yes, yeah there, was, there, there, were egg, there, there was still a lot of chicken poop. I, the whole time I was there, I was discovering corners of chicken poop and cleaning them out. <laughs> <laughs> I have two of my sons, my stepsons, were AmeriCorps volunteers. How is AmeriCorps related to VISTA? Vista was a subset of AmeriCorps, or uh, do you know the what the exact connection is? As I recall, Pres President Clinton started AmeriCorps, perhaps unaware that Vista already existed. <laughs> I, I don't know because it's basically the same thing. I didn't know Vista was still around until you told me you've got Vista volunteers in your area. I thought AmeriCorps was sort of the successor of Vista, but I'm not really sure. The concern that I had heard is that Vista, many of the people got very much involved in activism, that is in political activism, because when you see what the downside of our society is, it leads you to want to make some kind of a difference that way. And instead of just fishing people out of the river downstream, you want to stop them from being pushed into the river upstream. Yeah. Did you have some of that reaction when you were working for Vista? Well, I... I was part of a Quaker meeting. So yeah, we had, I guess that was where some of the activism came from. But no, I didn't really get involved in anything political. I was more or less just, it was enough to raise money and set up a literacy program. But but definitely it did occur to me that, you know, this is ridiculous that people are forced into lifestyles where they can't even get a basic education. I'm sure this will be an unpopular thing for many of our listeners for Spirit in Action. But if I could change something in this country, I would make sure that farmers, and I, I would prioritize family farmers, would get paid more for their produce of their work. As it is now, I know far too many farmers can't just farm. They have to have a side job to support farming because really we're getting them, we're paying them very, very little. I recall when I was, you know, growing up before in, in the 1960s, going to the grocery store and getting a gallon of milk for a dollar. And it may be a few times higher than that. But if you consider what inflation is, the price of milk has gone down, down, down to the farmer. So I just I would love to see farmers rewarded for their work and allowed to do it in a way that cares for the earth, which, of course, a lot of CSA community-sponsored agriculture, they do that. And so we try and support those as best we can. So your time in the Vista was from 1985 to 86. Were you already Quaker-connected at that point? You're in Utah. At, at I guess growing up, did you grow up in Utah? No, I, I grew up mostly in Denver, the Denver area. Moved there for a job out of college. Actually, at that time, I think I was still Catholic. I think I was going to the Catholic Church at that time, and it was actually, I think it was 
during Vista or, or after Vista, I ended up joining the Quakers. You went in the Peace Corps for a couple of years afterwards, and you lived in Liberia. And I'm assuming that since you lived in a village there called Smell No Taste, I had to look up online to see where that name came from. And what they told me is that it was because of the odors that wafted over the air from the mess hall of landing site for the Firestone Rubber Plantation. And so the people in the village would smell all these great smells coming from the mess hall. And hence, they named their town Smell No Taste. (laughs) Did you experience that while you were there? <laughs> well, Firestone was there. It was the big employer in um, Harbell, a few miles north. But I think by that time, they didn't they didn't have a mess hall or anything. It was, you know, people had their own houses and kitchens and stuff. Again, you went from Vista the year before, and then a few years later, you went in the Peace Corps. And what led you to go again to Africa? I mean, you're a journalist, aren't you? Was that what you were doing in the Peace Corps? No, I, I taught English at a high school. After Vista, it really kind of whet my appetite. I, I went back to journalism for a year, and but I wanted not only to kind of continue volunteering, but I, I, I wanted to see some of the world as well. And I was originally offered, I think, Colombia or some South American country because I, I speak Spanish, but I kind of already knew South America having been born there. So I, I kind of I wanted to experience something different. So I asked for Africa. You were teaching English, just uh, at what age level? Well, it was high school, but a lot of, of course, you know, you you know, from living in Togo, a lot of people drop out of school for a while and come back. So I, I would say a lot of my students were late teens, early 20s. Yeah, I was Peace Corps from age of 23 to 25, and I had students in essentially high school, at least say, that were within a year or two of me, very close, but... Of course, I had the advan- all the advantages that come in a place where I didn't have to put myself through high school or grade school or anything like that, as so many of my students did. Right. They kind of worked double jobs just to be in school with me. So what were the lessons that you got out of your Peace Corps experience? What did you get out of being in Africa for those couple of years? I guess my dad was always saying stuff like, what's wrong with those people? Why can't they just fix their country. And I mean, there's just so many things stacked against them, you know, just the the legacy of colonialism. I guess that was the main thing, the legacy of colonialism, because Liberia was founded by freed slaves. They had tried to make a American style form of government with a president and a, a house and senate and everything. But traditionally, it was the clan chiefs and village chiefs and, and that kind of thing. So it was unfamiliar and it never really worked very well. And yeah, I guess, I guess just, just learning about why some parts of the world are poor and our role in that was the main lesson I took from there. And the, there was a civil war. The civil war broke out, of course, in 1989 and uh, we, we were all evacuated. And just seeing the genesis of a civil war was, you know, mind blowing for me because when you got that many desperate people, you know, things can explode really fast and, and really badly. And people whose tribes got along just fine, when you throw power into the mix and money and people look around for an enemy, it divides along tribal lines really fast. So that was also really a good lesson. So how long total were you there in Liberia? And I'm talking about not just the Peace Corps, of course, but you, Cindy Yerth. How long were you there? 
Just a, a year and six months. I was not able to finish out my term because of the war. As you know, generally Peace Corps is two years. Right. I almost extended for a third year, but ended up feeling I needed to come back. Having watched the genesis of civil war there in Liberia, what are your thoughts about fears about civil war here in the United States? Because things are so tense, uh, liberal conservatism, those who are QAnon believers versus the rest of us. I mean, and you're living not far from states where some of the divides are the worst. Boy, yeah, I see a lot of the same mechanisms. And and then the racism as well and the religious intolerance. Because uh, Charles Taylor, I, I believe, was was a Christian. The, the guy who led the coup that went on when I was there, you know, there, there started to be a Christian and Muslim divide in Liberia where they'd gotten along perfectly well, you know, at least in my town. I, I never heard Christians badmouth Muslims or vice versa until things started getting bad. And I, 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 can, I see the exact same thing here with, you know, the Christians kind of commandeering the alt-right and the racism that's engendered. You know, no, no, nobody's seeing the real problem, which is the rich have gotten so rich and it's just harder and harder for the average person to make ends meet. So we start dividing and, and looking for people to blame. Part of the dynamics, I believe, in Liberia, and mind you, I've never been to Liberia. I've had friends who were stationed there or just Africans who I've known from there as well. And part of what I think was the dynamic there. When the slaves came back, set up government, which controlled it, they brought with them, of course, technology and education. That was true in the United States. And even Abraham Lincoln was one of the supporters of establishing colonies like Liberia for blacks to leave the United States and return to Africa. So those returnees became a kind of an upper class in Liberia. That's what I've learned. So what's his name? Charles Taylor for instance, he's an African, but he's an African of descent from the slaves who came back from the United States. So there was a power differential. And the other thing that people probably don't realize if they haven't lived in a town in Africa is, whereas in the United States, we tend to think, well, maybe you're of Irish descent, but you're American primarily. People still primarily identify with their tribe. And so in the area of Togo I lived in, it was the Eve, but there's the Kabye and the Kodokoli and the Basari, all of these different tribes that are around there with different languages. So it's not a, nearly as simple as you might think to see the people of Liberia as a single people. They are a hodgepodge of nations that are brought together. So racism is often clanism or tribalism or whatever, as well as the dynamics of the returned slaves. Right. Yeah. People find ways to divide and other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some people live in big fancy houses and have other people take care of their needs for them. And that kind of power dynamic, which exists in the United States, can affect every country in the world. Sure. Yeah. It's classism, basically. Well, you came back from the Peace Corps, had to be evacuated when Liberia degraded into civil war. But then you it wasn't too long before you're back in Africa. Tell me about your stint with the Society of African Missions. Yeah. So, yeah, I came back and 
I guess I had a lot of survivor guilt because I knew my students were off fighting or or hiding. And it it was just difficult to hear the news and and feel so helpless. And plus, you know, I felt like I was just getting the hang of West Africa when I had to leave. I felt very called to go back. I just started, you know, of course, that time there wasn't Google, but I started researching volunteer opportunities in, in Africa. And and I was still Catholic at that time. So I guess I hadn't discovered Quakers yet when I was in Vista. So I discovered the Society of African Missions that had a presence in Liberia and Ghana and then a few other countries. So I signed up to go back as a Catholic missionary. And what were you doing specifically? I was in Kumasi, which is the second biggest city in, in Ghana that's kind of in, in the interior. It's the base of a large diocese, and I was assigned to assist the communications director. And what does that mean? I mean, because you're a journalist already in experience, so does this mean that you're the public relations arm, or what is this? It was kind of what we would call a PR job. (laughs) I was responsible for a weekly newsletter and organizing a video library of Catholic videos. And then like if we had a visit from the bishop or, or he was going somewhere to do something, I'd have to take a video camera and record the visit and make little videos, all that kind of stuff. And how does that compare to service with VISTA or Peace Corps, other things that are more easily labeled as world healing works? Were you satisfied with your two years with the Society of African Missions? Well, the church was doing some good stuff, but it was also another layer of hierarchy on on a society that was already oppressed. I liked my boss, the communications director. He was a highly ethical person, but I did meet people in the Catholic hierarchy, who just seem to be kind of enjoying themselves at the expense of their parishioners. And yeah, I don't know how much good I really did in that in that position as far as really helping people who needed to be helped. Did it assuage at all your survivor's guilt? I think so. I mean, Ghana at that time, and I think still, is an African country that works to some extent. Jerry Rollins was in power then, and and even though he took power in a coup, he he seemed to be a person who really wanted to help his country progress. So seeing an example of an African country that worked and was actually taking in Liberian refugees, it helped me to feel better about Africa in general and see maybe what Liberia and the rest of West Africa could become with better government. Folks, we're speaking today with Cindy Yurth for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. One of the crowning things that we're going to get to that Cindy is involved with right now is Humane Society, and we'll talk a lot more about that in the second half of this program. But I did want you to remember to visit our website. Again, that's northernspiritradio.org. You'll find links to Cindy Yurth. So, for instance, the Black Hat Humane Society society.org is where you can track down her current work. But that's just one of the places. You'll also find links to her work with Navajo Times and uh, the Society of African Missions. All those things are on NordenSpiritRadio.org. When you visit our site, please post a comment on this program and let us know what you thought of it, uh, other people we should be talking to. Cindy Yurth is not uh, one of the prominent international leaders. And oftentimes people think that that's the way that change is done. I tend to think that 
the healing of the world happens one person at a time. And when a person puts their life in a direction to do world healing, it makes the world a better place. And I'm hoping all of you listeners for Spirit in Action feel inspired by the work of people like Cindy Earth as they go about piece by piece healing the world. And there's need for healing everywhere. There's links to all of our guests of the last 17 years on NordenSpiritRadio.org and a place to support us. We've consciously made the decision not to look for corporate or governmental income to support us. We depend on you, the listeners, so that we won't have divided loyalties. And that's something else I want to talk to Cindy about because she was in journalism for so long. Whose interests are we serving as when we do journalism, whether it be print or radio or TV or some other form? I also want to encourage you to support your local community radio station, There's community radio stations all over this country doing great work, getting out news and information, music that you get nowhere else. And before we got on the air, Cindy was telling me about KSJD in Cortez, Colorado. How far away is that from you? About an hour away. What are they like? What do they do? Oh, gosh, they have a lot of local DJs that play the kind of music that they like. So you can get everything from blues to reggae they they have a lot of local news and some NPR shows and kind of a, a neat mix of things. Yeah, and they've got Democracy Now! and other great things. Uh, just uh, one more great station. And there are some 35 to 45 stations carrying Northern Spirit radio programming all across the U.S. And please support them because the alternative in journalism is so important. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit more about right now, Cindy. Again, you've worked in journalism in various forms for something like 40 years. You retired this past year. So you had some experience. You came back. You're living in Utah, I believe, at that point again, and doing journalism. What was your experience of world healing as a journalist, or did that weigh in as part of your motivation or intent or what you were able to do while you were there? Absolutely. I I think local journalism in particular is, I mean, just presenting people with what's happening in, in their own communities in a way that no other news source is, is going to give you. It's just a, a foundation for people making decisions about politics, about their work, about what they want to do with their lives. And it's, it's just a tragedy to me how much of it has disappeared. Are there points in your journalistic career that you felt particularly you had your finger on the pulse, you were able to, and you were empowered to do the work that you wanted to do with the world? I mean, sometimes when you take a job, you just got to do what the boss says. Yeah. I've always had bosses who were very open to reporters pursuing what they were interested in. I feel like local journalism connects a problem with a solution so often I'm trying to think of some specific things here that I did in Logan. I, I was the features editor for the Logan Herald Journal. So I got to report on people who were making a, a difference in the community. And so many times people would call me and say, hey, somebody saw your article and sent me a $1,000. <laughs> you know, or, or this person volunteered and they were just what I needed after seeing your article. So yeah, that just happened all the time. And it made me feel real good about you just present the facts and people do with them what they will. And there's good people out there that just need to know about 
Could I ask you a little bit about your religious, spiritual journey? I knew you grew up Catholic. You, you've already mentioned that. After I finished high school, I went out inspecting other religions just to see what were some of the options and tried out a couple different things. What was your journey in terms of spirituality or religion or both? Well, after I got back from Ghana, I was a little bit disillusioned with the Catholic Church. It just seemed like, like I said, another layer of hierarchy. I started looking around, and my landlord at the time was a Quaker in Logan. And he said, well, why don't you come and check out meeting? I think he actually said it's not for everybody, but I think it might be for you. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I went, and my first experience sitting in a silent meeting I just started crying. All the the trauma that had been pent up from my years in Africa just kind of came out. And I I actually walked out of meeting the first time because I I felt like I was distracting people. Second time, same thing. I, I cried all the way through. I'm not really sure why, but it just released something in me. And then by the third time, I was able to sit and really feel the spirit. And it just it just seemed like Christianity just pared down to the, the most basic hot molten core of your relationship with God and your relationship with this community of people that we're also seeking. And it just resonated with me right away. And I've never looked back. That's really interesting, the crying thing. My wife describes her first experience. She didn't know a Quaker meeting was all silence or almost all silence. When she went to it, she just went in. She was waiting for things to start. And when she realized <laughs> it was going, she just found the tears flowing out. And for me, it wasn't till my third or fourth time that something like that happened to me. There is a, a knowledge of a spirit that transcends what I know on the surface about the people there that hit me when I had my big experience. So I'm real interested to hear that you had a couple of few times you had to keep crying to to let it out. Right now you're in Rockwood, Colorado. Is there Are there Quakers in your neighborhood now? Yeah, Durango, friends. Durango has a, a nice meeting that I attend. So you tried out Quakers and you had Catholics. Did you do anything in between? Did you check out the other options? You know, I really haven't. I mean, I've gone with Protestant friends to their church before. And, and of course, living in Utah, I went to the, the Mormon church with friends quite a bit who invited me. But that's about it. Yeah, I find it so interesting how those of us end up connected with Quakers. And again, you and I both have this Catholic background, which I found a rich source of substance and foundation for me to be a, Catholic, a Quaker, for that matter. But it just wasn't the place where I was counted to be as an adult. So you worked as a journalist for a number of years, uh, some of it in Utah, and then you migrated south. Tell me about that move. After I married in 2002 in Logan, my husband was just completing his education degree, looking around for jobs and, and found one at Chinle High School on the Navajo Nation. And I was really excited because I thought it'd be kind of like, you know, doing Peace Corps in the United States. <laughs> and it kind of was, you know, getting to know a different culture. That's what led us down there. And did you have things in place to work in journalism when you had moved down? No, I I figured I, I wouldn't probably find a career there. So I substitute taught for a while and that, that was just horrible. 
(laughs) (laughs) And um, I wrote to the Navajo Times and said, I'm a journalist. I know I'm not Navajo, but I'd love to, you know, at least write a few stories now and then. And so I started working. I think my first story was the principal at one of the elementary schools in Chinle died suddenly, like within days of when school was supposed to start. So it was a pretty dramatic story and everybody knew her. She'd been there forever. So I got a pretty good story out of it. And of course, my husband had connections in the education community that he could point me to. And it turned out to be a, a really great story you know, not wanting to make light of the fact that somebody died for the story, but I turned it in. It, I was surprised it was on the front page the next day. And before long, they, they offered me a full-time job. I was producing more stories than most of their full-timers anyway. I looked via their website, and, and folks, you can check that out via navajotimes.com. There's an author, Cindy Yurth is going to be, you. I'll have a link to that on nordenspiritradio.org. But I saw various articles you've done. How many years total were you there? I was there 17 years. That's a lot of mileage that you put on. And because actually things are pretty spread out there too, right? So did you have to travel out or were you on the phone? How did you do this? The Navajo Nation is the size of West Virginia. So yeah, we were on the road covering stories a lot. A lot of people didn't have phones on the Navajo Nation So, yeah, there was a lot of in-person interviews, a ton of travel. You said that in some ways you had foreseen that it might be something like a Peace Corps experience because the Indian nations that exist within the borders of the United States oftentimes were dumping grounds. People were put on infertile land. They were cut off from a lot of the resources the rest of us are used to. What did you learn about the Navajo people? And it's not just, I guess, the Navajo people. There's other tribes. The Hopi maybe are nearby and so on. What did you learn in your experience there? Was it akin to anything that you learned in Africa or elsewhere traveling around the world? Well, again, you know, I mean, there's there's reasons why some people are poor and some people are rich within the same country. And I did not know, I mean, you think growing up in Colorado, where there are a lot of natives that that I would have been better educated about them, but I did not know, for instance, about tribal trust land and that that people can't own land on reservations. It's, It's all held in trust by the government, which I think is the main obstacle to people making any kind of money because our system is set up so that if you want to start a business, what do you do? You put up your house for collateral usually. What if you can't own a house? What if you can't own the, the piece of land that your house is sitting on? What do you do? So that was a real revelation to me. And also just the fact that I think we tend to, as white people, lump Native nations together and say, oh, they're so communal and they like to do everything as a tribe and stuff. But really, the Navajo, they're very spread out. They don't like to live really in communities of you know other people. They're more on individual ranches where one family or one clan will live together, but they'll be miles from their neighbors generally. They were a herding tribe originally, so they, you know, they made their living off their sheep. And with climate change and all the overgrazing and everything that the land has become, even though it was their original homeland, it's become a, a lot harder to make a living on this land, especially since they're no longer allowed to be nomadic, which was their tradition in the past was, you know, they'd graze down an area and then then move on. 
So there's all kinds of factors. And it's amazing they're doing as well as they are, actually. (laughs) Then, of course, the uh, resource extraction, the big Peabody coal mine on the Navajo and, and Hopi reservations pretty much dug out a lot of coal, displaced a lot of people. They were getting bottom dollar for their resources. They have oil, but again, you know, companies came and extracted it and left and uranium. So this is a very resource-rich tribe that should have been able to provide for their people well if it weren't for corporations taking advantage of them. Yeah, I see that kind of stuff happening a lot. You mentioned Peabody, the coal mine, the same one mentioned in the song by John Prine. Yeah. Mr. Peabody's coal mine has hauled it away, his song Paradise. Let's go on to one other area of Cindy Earth's experience work. I think it's part of your bringing light to the world and trying to do world healing. And that is the website that people primarily might follow you up with you now. It's the Black Hat Humane Society dot org is the website and links on Northern Spirit Radio dot org. Tell me about how you got involved with them. Well, it was our first fall in Chinle, and my husband had just started teaching. Actually, it was Labor Day weekend. This little puppy walked up to our doorstep, and it was covered in mange and, and just skin and bones and didn't look like it was going to make it. And I didn't take it in for a while, but he just pretty much camped on our doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> and we put food and water out for him, and he wouldn't go away. And finally, one day I came home, and he was in the house. My husband had let him in. And and gave him a bath right away, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> he was still pretty gross. And my husband said, I, I just can't leave him out there. It was starting to get cold, and I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. So what are we going to do? And we had our dog and two cats that we had brought with us from Logan and our, the teacher house. Of course, you, you live in teach ridges there because you can't own, own land on the Navajo Nation or rent anything. So our rule in our teacher apartment was we were only supposed to have two pets. So we were already hiding one of the cats. And now we had this other dog. <laughs> Eric started asking around my husband and found out there was a, a humane society on the Navajo Nation, the Black Cat Humane Society. And we made some connections and, and got trained as volunteers. And we fostered the puppy until he was healthy. Oh, and here's another thing. <laughs> it was Labor Day weekend, and he suddenly wasn't eating and was throwing up and had diarrhea. And the nearest vet, there, there was a Navajo Nation vet in Chinle, but they weren't open on Labor Day weekend. The, the only vet we could find that was open was in Grants, New Mexico, about two hours away. <laughs> <laughs> so we jumped in our car and we we took him to the vet and it turned out he had parvo and so seven hundred dollars later we got him back and he was okay so yes we nursed him back to health and we found him a home and that that was it then we were almost never without a foster dog or cat after that for 17 years and how did that lead you to the black cat humane society that was the Humane Society that was there through one of the teachers. She connected me with the woman who was running it at the time, Tamara Martin, who actually founded it. We, we fostered for them. We, we would rescue dogs off the street and foster them. And, and then they, they would pay for the vet care and help us find homes for them. 
I think I need to learn a lot more about what humane society does. I've never actually been in one. I've had animals and pets and taken care of strays and all that kind of things. I think you'd find me to be a an animal-loving person. It's also part of what makes me a vegetarian since 1976. I see animals as relatives more so than just uh, something functional in the world. How does the Humane Society work? What does it do? So what we do is Humane Societies work in different ways in different places. Most of them are involved with the animal shelter or animal control in their town. But on the Navajo Nation, the shelters are are so small and and poorly run. They, they, They usually just go to euthanasia as the first resort. So what we do is we rescue the animals off the street. There are an estimated 400,000 stray dogs on the Navajo Nation. So there's plenty to pick from. They usually congregate around the grocery stores or the gas stations, places where people might give them scraps of food. So we, we take them in. We have a network of foster volunteers and the foster volunteers sort of, you know, treat the dogs as as their own. We get them healthy. We leash train them, house train them, crate train them. And then we advertise them on our website and petfinder.org to find them homes. And those homes could be anywhere? Yep. We have black cat dogs in Alaska, Hawaii, Maine, Washington State, just all over. And is it all dogs? No, we occasionally find cats. The cats are generally prey for the stray dogs on the Navajo Nation, so they're they're not as much of a problem as the dogs. But there are there are uh, definitely feral cat colonies, and and sometimes people have us help with those. So yeah, occasionally cats, but mostly dogs. And other animals? Do they matter? Can you bring in a mountain lion? <laughs> there are a lot of feral horses on on the Navajo Nation, and. We did have one volunteer at one time who had a, a, a pasture and was able to take him in some horses, but right now we don't have anybody doing that. You already mentioned, Cindy, that you have had both cats and dogs as pets yourself, and yet it seems like the dogs are getting all the love here. I don't blame you. I mean, I particularly prefer dogs over cats, although I had a pet cat at once who used to sleep with me just right next to me on the pillow. It was very sweet. So would you say that the Humane Society is about all animals or some animals or what? Because there are so many different animals that one could be. I mean, people have rats as pets and squirrels can kind of be pets, (laughs) that kind of thing. All of this. What's Humane Society's intent or direction? Well, our mission statement is to improve the lives of cats and dogs on the Navajo Nation. But you know, definitely life is a continuum and, and we're all part of the same thing. They did call us one time, someone found a bull with a, a horn that was actually growing back in through its skull. We were able to find a veterinarian to take care of that. So I think if, if, if you if you love life, you, you love all of life from little beetles on up. <laughs> and we should mention that you retired from journalism over the past year. But that didn't mean you stopped working. What's your role specifically with the Black Cat Humane Society? I am now the president. So, yeah, I, I kind of oversee the, the volunteers, and we, we have an all-volunteer board. So, yeah, coordinate the transportation, the foster volunteers, fundraising, all that stuff. 
Is there a cultural thing relating to animals in that area that might be different? I, I In Togo, where I lived, having pets was less typical, but between the north and the south of Togo, there was a very different, uh, a switched opposite attitude towards cats and dogs. In one of those areas, cats were pet. In the other areas, cats were food. And in that area where cats were food, dogs were pets. And in the other area, dogs were food. So it's, it's a very different attitude depending on which area you were in. That's really interesting. Well, the, the Navajos are, of course, a, a herding tribe. So dogs are, are really important in their culture, but they're more working animals. Traditional Navajos will not let a dog in the house, for example. But I do think they have the reverence for life. You know, I mean, a lot of white people come in and, and are just, you know, horrified at at all the the dogs running around on the street not being taken care of. But I don't think it's a cultural thing. I think it's a poverty thing and just lack of resources. I mean, one one veterinarian for an an area the size of West Virginia, and of course, if you're going to choose between feeding your kids or taking your dog to the vet, you're going to feed your kids. So, you know, it's it's the culture of poverty. I I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in the Appalachians, which is mostly white, you know, you see a lot of stray dogs and animals not being cared for. So I don't think there's really a much of a cultural difference other than that the animals are for work more than pets per se. Cats are tolerated because they kill mice. Dogs are for herding sheep. Of course, your the ethic is is to be kind to, to all living things. That's definitely, you know, the, the Navajo way. But, you know, you're so isolated and there just isn't the money to care for an animal. It it might get discarded in the desert, tossed by the wayside. Well, folks, we're going to wind down our interview with Cindy Earth today for Spirit in Action. One more thing I wanted to ask you about, Cindy, was the book that you wrote. And this, again, you wrote while you're you're on the Navajo Nation. Could you tell our listeners for Spirit in Action about the book? Maybe you can show it to me on video. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Um, exploring the Navajo Nation chapter by chapter. So the local government units on the Navajo Nation are called chapters. And I decided while, while I was working at the Times that I was going to visit every single chapter. There's 110 of them. And once a week, I wrote a column for the Times about what I discovered, and I didn't just, you know, go go to the chapter president or the, the chapter government. In some cases I did, but but sometimes I, I would just, you know, find somebody on the street and talk to them about their community and the problems and, and the, the interesting things. So, uh, yeah, it's a collection of 110 little stories, place-based stories, and it has a page at a glance that talks about the name of the chapter, what the major clans are there, attractions and features, location and, and history. Then a few pages, just basically in interviews of, of people that I found there. How closely identified are the chapters with families? I, I don't know if immigrants are completely welcome into any areas. Do people move around within the Navajo Nation? I imagine they marry across clans and so on. So uh, how close are the chapters identified with clans? Pretty closely. Um, people group 
um, according to clans, the, the clans are matrilineal, like they are in West Africa. If a man marries in, into a clan, he is supposed to move to his wife's area. Yeah, people do do move to get married. Obviously, you don't want to marry someone related to you. So there's, you know, there, there's clans that are not supposed to intermarry because they're related way back and stuff like that. So yeah, pe- and people move for work, you know, the more populous places like Chinle, where where I was, there there were people from all over because there were jobs there. But yeah, the the, the communities are are very identified with clans. If you're not from a certain family, it's sometimes hard to get elected to a chapter office. One of the experiences that I had while a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, in Togo, was that in my village, particularly the first year I was there, I was the one white person, which uh, there's so many places in the United States where someone of African heritage moves in and they feel very conspicuous as the one black person in the area. How does that feel or exist or what's the reality of it when you live in the Navajo Nation as a person of European descent? In Chinle, there were actually quite a few because the school and the hospital were there. So so there were quite a, a few um, non-natives there. But but still, yeah, you, you, you do attract attention. If you walk into a shoe game or something, you know, everyone kind of turns around or a fire dance or whatever. So there is that feeling of being conspicuous. I think after four years in West Africa, I was kind of used to it. <laughs> You're used to being conspicuous. Right. But <laughs> what color was your hair before it reached our age? It was black. Yeah. I, a blonde, <laughs> I felt like, particularly stuck out in Africa. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm glad I wasn't blonde there. (laughs) Well, Cindy, I'm so happy to have met you. Of course, we met via Facebook. And just I looked through what you've done, your articles with the Navajo Times, and then learning more about your background with Peace Corps, Vista, your caring for animals. All these things made me feel like I've got a sister across the United States over in Colorado. I thank you so much for that work that you've done. And now that you're retired, that you continue to do. And thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much, Mark. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And again, our guest has been Cindy Yurth. Come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and I'll have links to the Black Hat Humane Society.org. We'll have a link to articles that she did with the Navajo Times, and you'll find a link to her book, Exploring the Navajo Nation, chapter by chapter. You can buy that online. Follow those links from NorthernSpiritRadio.org and learn more about Cindy Earth and about the wonderful world that she's been part of healing. We've got a couple minutes left to share just a tiny taste of one variety of music arising out of the Navajo Nation, this time through the voice of Radmila Cody, who I interviewed for my Song of the Soul program back in 2017 in at least part of a song that she shared called Kinship and Hope. You can hear the whole song and other songs by Radmila via the link with this program on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Please enjoy Kinship and Hope, and join us next week for Spirit in Action. Hey, you 
ne ko ke pe hat ne stay ne zon ne ko ke pe hat ne stay shik e nash e ko ke pe hat ne stay shik e nash e ko ke pe hat ne stay Hey na hey hey na hey hey na hey na hey 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 hey Ne jonne ko ke pe hat ne stehe ne jonne ko ke pe hat ne stehe tana shake ke pe hat ne stehe tana shake ke pe hat ne stehe Hey and now hey 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 and now hey hey and now hey and now hey The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo. 